Atamaria, welcome to First Up. It's Rahina, Monday, the 20th of February. Kornathan Rarariaho coming up. US Vice President Kamala Harris says that Russia will be held to account for crimes against humanity. Our correspondent Mitch McCann joins us live from the US. Closer to home, orchardists accounting the cost of Cyclone Gabrielle, and we tell you what you can do to support them. And also, First Up producer Matthew Turnison is in Tolaga Bay, where locals are furious about Slash and what will become of the forestry workers. The 30 people that turned up to help us on a Saturday and Sunday have been told there's no work in the forest because the roads are gone, we can't pay you, go and see MSC or MSD or whoever the hell they are that are going to give you a handout. Kia ora everybody, welcome to First Up, it's Nathan Rarity here on a uh, uh, yeah on a Monday morning where obviously we've been watching all the efforts going on uh, and we send uh, all of our love to you on the eastern side of the North Island there that are uh, of course the, the silt, the build up of the silt and uh, the sun baking it hard and making it very hard to do every day but um, I've been very uh, heartened by seeing lots of uh, New Zealanders trying to ditch in and uh, pitch in I should say and help each other uh, out there with various forms of farm equipment and, and what have you and it's great to see that it happening right now but of course we need to uh, keep them in our thoughts for the next few weeks because uh, things can get a bit lonely a couple of weeks later when uh, extra help goes away but uh, we'll get to that soon of course we've got Matthew uh, who's in uh, Tolaga Bay but right now we'll go to the United States Mitch McCann is with me uh, from New York City uh, Morena Mitch hey this was interesting so the, it says here the US have formally determined that Russia has committed war crimes in Ukraine. First off, what are they alleging, and then what does formal determination actually mean? Yeah, well, Kamala Harris is on a three- to four-day trip to Europe at the moment, Nathan, where she's spoken at the Munich Security Conference. So she's gone over there with a number of world leaders like herself, where the hot topic has, as you might imagine, been Ukraine. Now, she went quite far in these comments yesterday criticising Russia, where she accused it of gruesome acts of murder, torture, rape, and deportation. Now, she went on, as you've said to accuse it of crimes against humanity. Now, this is something that's usually tried at the International Criminal Court. However, the ICC has no jurisdiction over Russia because they didn't sign that agreement uh, when it was formulated a number of years ago. So this, I think, was really a chance for the vice president to keep the war in Ukraine firmly in the spotlight across the world at the moment. It's only a few days uh, away from the one-year anniversary, so it's very important for Western nations, I think, to keep it in the spotlight. Um, also, too, some some sad news there about a former leader, President Jimmy Carter. Um, he's his family's released a statement uh, about his health. Yeah, and Jimmy Carter is really popular here in the United States. Uh, I've worked out in the last couple of months. He's ninety eight years old, and it's no secret, Nathan. He hasn't been in good health for uh, some time now. He suffered cancer in twenty fifteen. He's also had a number of falls. Yesterday, his family issued a statement saying he was no longer going to uh, undergo medical treatment, instead opting to uh, have hospice care with his family at home in Georgia. Now, Jimmy Carter served one term as U.S. president after the 1976 election, but he's perhaps most celebrated nowadays for what he did when he left office. He really played a diplomatic role for the U.S., often acting, uh, you could say, as a freelance ambassador to deal with a number of problems the U.S. was facing around the world. So he's undergoing hospice care now. Uh, at home in Plains, Georgia, which is a couple of hours south of Atlanta.
Yeah, Mitch. Hey, Mitch, thank you very much for your time. Mitch McCann, who is with us there from New York City, it is seven and a half past five. Uh, Just some news there, which many people have been following. The BBC is reporting police searching for the missing Nicola Bully have found a body in the river. The mother of two disappeared during a riverside dog walk in St Michael's on Wire in Lancashire. That's three weeks ago that happened, and that sparked a major search operation. Lancashire police said that they sadly recovered a body after they were called to the river wire near Rawcliffe Road at 11.35 GMT on Sunday. A statement said that formal identification had not been carried out yet, so we are unable to say if it is Ms Bully. That is the report there from the local police, and uh, we'll bring more to hand as it happens. Well, nearly two weeks on from Turkey's devastating earthquake, officials say that most efforts to find survivors will end today. Search operations have been winding down over the last few days as the chance to find people fades. Uh, More than 46,000 people are known to have died. Bereaved Syrian families in Turkey are desperately trying to return their loved ones to Syria so they can be buried on home soil. Many crossed the border to escape the Syrian civil war but clung to the hope of returning. The BBC's Nafisi Konavad reports. A mother's painful farewell to her loved ones. Take good care of each other, she tells them. The bodies of Aisha's three children and two grandchildren are in these bags. They died when their building collapsed in the Turkish city of Antakya. Her and her husband, along with their four-year-old granddaughter, are the only survivors. They are now sending them across the border to Syria to be buried on homeland. The family left Idlib to take refuge in Turkey, hoping for a fresh start. Already broken by years of civil war, they are now completely shattered. We fled the war but died in the earthquake. We have been here since early morning and in just a few hours we have seen six trucks taking bodies across to Syria. The police tell us this is a massive operation for them. They are working day and night to help this crossing. Back in Antakya, about 40 kilometers from the border, Ali was just recently engaged to one of Aisha's daughters. He was on a video call with her when the earth started shaking. I didn't know it would be the last time I would see her. When the earthquake happened, she looked at me with fear. I saw her running. She got up while still holding the phone. But then the network went down and electricity was cut off. Like many here, Ali has had to put his grief on hold. He is part of a team of Syrians helping other Syrians find their loved ones. But a big part of their homeland has also been devastated by the earthquake. And they are left fending for themselves. We should think about Syria. They don't have electricity or clean water. Their houses have been devastated by the bombs and now the earthquake. Of course we accept what comes from God, but I should tell the world enough. For Aisha, there is one more heartbreak to come as the family finally recovered the last person they were looking for the body of their son-in-law, 10 days after the earthquake.
is 11 and a half past five here in New Zealand. And you are listening to First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarity. We go to Europe now, where our correspondent, Nita Blake-Person, is with us from Germany. Kia ora, how are you? Morena, Nathan. I'm doing well. How about yourself? Uh, not bad, not bad. So tell me this, this is exciting. People put the glad rags on and they go to the Berlin Film Festival, which has kicked off with all the usual excitement and a bit of pomp, I imagine, but some very pointed political messages coming through as well. So tell us, what are the big uh, big films making waves this year? Well, the, the big prizes, the Bear Awards, haven't actually been uh, given out yet. They're still being considered. But as you say, the festival is always a pretty political affair. It's something that organises pride, you know, the whole event on, actually. This year, the key themes appear to be opposition to the Iranian regime. Um, there was a protest by many filmmakers on the red carpet on Saturday. And the war in Ukraine is also dominating discussions. Uh, the festival was opened by a live video addressed by Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky. And those topics, not just, you know, surrounding the festival, but actually in several films as well. Some of the, the footage included in some of the Iranian films had to be smuggled out to, to be shown. And there's one film which is getting uh, quite a bit of attention. It's made by Sean Penn. Um, you may recognise him as the American actor. He'd actually been making a film about Zelensky when the war broke out last year. Um, they started several months beforehand and it was supposed to be about Zelensky's rise from this satirical actor who mocked all these politicians to then actually become one. But of course, then Russia invaded and so the film took quite a turn. Uh, Penn spoke to media at the festival over the weekend and he said it's an unapologetically biased film. Apparently, uh, critics say it doesn't actually give a whole heap of new information or behind-the-scenes uh, type insight, uh, but it's certainly getting lots of um, coverage. I was not one of the lucky ones to snap up any of these film festival tickets, so I'll be waiting until it eventually comes out. There's uh, about 300 films being screened, so plenty to see when they eventually hit cinemas. I mean, all the best documentaries have that tangent that just shoots off right in the middle of it there as well. I mean, uh, your country going to war, that's a pretty biggie uh, there. So yeah, we'll have a look it's, for that one. Good old Sean Penn, eh? Hey, that, now, this is, I reckon I can save German authorities lots of money here. German authorities <laughs> are going to investigate whether Elon Musk has been boosting his own tweets on Twitter. I'm going to guess Yes. I had a somewhat similar take on this one, Nathan. I, I doubt that hearing that Bavarian authorities are looking into his tweet behaviour has um, Musk too concerned either. Um, but the background around this, Elon Musk, uh, there have been some media reports that Musk, who owns Twitter, had demanded his own tweets be promoted above others and that the algorithm be changed so that this was possible. They got more visibility on the site. Um, apparently, the tweets in question were about the Super Bowl and um, he wanted his to be seen above others. It must be said he's denied any interference, but the media regulator here in uh, Bavaria in Germany, so they're going to investigate whether Twitter might have violated a law that it has in place to protect against media bias. Um, the aim here to, you know, make sure that you don't put some things above others journalistically or editorially, hopefully um, deterring things like election interference. Uh, it's a fine line because you've got your algorithms and then, you know, Musk runs the company. How do you decide these things? But um, if found guilty, Twitter could face sanctions. Again, probably not going to have Elon Musk, Musk super concerned right now, but it could be an interesting test case around how he um, behaves on the platform.
Yeah, I'm changing my review from yes to of course he did. There we go. That's what we'll do. <laughs> hey, now, the, um, oh boy, in Romania, tell me about this. Doctors being investigated for allegedly reusing medical devices from deceased patients. What What are they? What's going on here? Yeah, this is a, a very grisly story, this one. So five doctors in Romania are being investigated for apparently taking cardiac implants, I think your pacemakers and things like that, out of dead patients and putting them into living patients. Um, prosecutors say there was one doctor who oversaw a network of four others who supplied these implants and there was no prior approval from any of the deceased patients. And obviously these, like, procedures have huge risks or possibility of death for the people who had these devices put in them as well. Apparently, it's been going on for years. Um, Prosecutors say since 2017, with the doctors performing 238 surgeries. We are not sure yet how the scheme came to light, but one of the doctors has been taken into custody on charges of abuse of power and bribe taking. And possibly even more uh, sinister element to it. The statement from prosecutors even says that a large number of the implants recommended by the doctor weren't actually necessary and were prompted by fake diagnoses. So grim all round. It's it's not the first time Romania's had major issues with its healthcare system. There have been numerous uh, corruption scandals over the years and it spends uh, the least on healthcare in the EU. EU. I actually read today that the um, government has built one hospital there in the past three decades. So that may paint a bit of a picture around uh, the government's health priorities. Just thinking about that, Nita, and I was, I was trying to battle with it in my mind. I mean, I, I know that you can, you know, you can donate your organs. So I guess if, if look, if I needed a pacemaker and that was a cheaper way for it to happen, I think I would happily take it. As opposed to no one. I Yeah, yeah, I think it's the same thing. I guess sanitation would be a key element um, and maybe, you know, consent could be a biggie too. Yeah, true. I suppose you've got to be told you're getting aftermarket parts, don't you? All right, thank you uh, very much. Nita Blake-Person there from uh, from Germany. Yeah, 2101 if you've got some thoughts on that this morning. It's 18 past five. I'm Nathan Arreda here at First Up on RNZ National. So uh, to come this morning, obviously a big focus in the aftermath of Gabrielle. Uh, we have the general manager of Yummy Fruit. His name's Paul Painter. Just talking about, is going to describe to you what sort of devastation has happened when this sort of silt and build-up sweeps through a large amount of your orchards. We'll find out maybe about how many is missing and how we can help them. And also too, uh, forestry slash, which there are logs appearing in every single picture of it. Uh, it's ravaged many places, including Tolaga Bay. So uh, Tolaga Bay, there, a uh, settlement near there, and farmers are asking who should foot the bill for the clean-up. There they are, standing in the rear. Big ones, small ones, some Time to hear now from our Minister of Fruit and Veggies. He's Glenn Forsyth. Uh, Morena, Glenn, have you got some good news for us out there at the moment? Is there any good news in the world of produce? <laughs> Morning, Nathan. We do, actually. Let's let's be, begin with some good news this morning. And, you know, water never got into Awakuni Heights. So Kim Young and Sons are underway now with new season carrots. Caught up with the lovely Norman Young. It, man, he makes me laugh every time. You know, whenever I need my day brightened, I call 0800 Norman. Awakuni are supplying carrots and Brussels sprouts now. And we'll start digging the new season potatoes at the end of the month. Luckily, this district was spared the storm. Refrigerate carrots in paper bags. 
apart from enjoying raw, sliced or grated, they are also tasty and sweet dishes such as carrot cake or muffins. And if you, you know, you can cook in so many ways, bake, barbecue, boil, braise, microwave, roast, steam, stew or stir fry. Now, our three favourites to eat are roasted, mashed in with the potato or in the casserole where they soak up all those juices and flavours. Norman and dear wife, Kerry, they love looking after the community. And 11 kilometres from Oakuni or Ratahi, they still run their distinctive orange and green vegetable store. It's very well known, freshly grown items and still run by an honesty box. The exact address is 6740 State Highway 4, very fair prices, of course, and currently there is carrots, broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, and pumpkin. You may have even seen the store yourself driving past that road, Nathan. I, I found uh, one of the purple carrots uh, a couple of years ago in a produce shop. It was really cool to, to, see, you know, to see those and go... No, it actually tastes just like a normal carrot, but um, yeah, yes. it's purple. It was very cool. Yes. Hey, um, what's the scene going on with vegetables at the moment? Oh, slipping back into a little bit of bad news now. Things are beginning to get somewhat dire on the vegetable front. Sweet corn and courgettes nearly doubled up on recent prices, and Coomera, well, they went off the Richter scale today. Broccoli has taken on a lot of water, so it's turning yellow, so eat quick if you buy. And it's easier to sight a mower bird right now than it is to see spinach. There is also the fear of lettuce browning inside, so safer bets could be the salad bags of mescaline and baby leaf lettuce there to use sparingly for your sandwiches, salads, salads and garnish. Now, one banner group, for example, usually puts out a dozen promotional lines, especially in summer, but this week a total of four. It's it's like all bets are off. Cucumbers are hanging in there and white button mushrooms are improving in supply. But here is our suggestion early week on vegetable buying before things turn even more pear-shaped. Agri-air potatoes, they're outstanding at present and it's best to buy bulk. So if you shop around, a 10-kilo bag can be around $20. I mean, that is a bargain. Join this purchase with carrots and onions, a bag of capsicums and tomatoes, and sneak in a, he- a head of cauliflower and hardy cabbage before demand pushes them up the following week. So kind of back to basics, but, you know, that is several top lines right there for you. What about fruit? Uh, fruit was talking with many retailers yesterday and this morning, and when they were saying they placed their order with the sales guys and get told, thanks for your order, but everything is on rations, you know you're in trouble. I'd take bananas for starters with a boat diverted to Australia first because of our storm. That is going to play havoc with supply here this week. Now, whenever I hear things like this, you know, I'm at the store at Sparrow's to grab our bananas early and run. So now, thank goodness for Central Otago, though, taking over the baton from Hawke's Bay on stone fruit. Prices will be firm in Auckland. However, as one, you know, lift of produce from down there is about $450 in freight alone, you can see how, you know, prices there are going to be a little bit steep. Look out for Flatto Gold Peaches, Green Gauge Plums, and this will be your last week for cherries. Be selective there, though, as some are getting long in the tooth. Royal Gala Apples, they're in good supply. Now, when transport, you know, when transport allows them to get them to us, of course, and melons and berries remain in season, but some growers of both of these lines have suffered heavy losses around the North Island. And finishing on a handful of some other fruit spotted at the market floors today were kiwi berries, dragon fruit, passion fruit, and Australian red seedless grapes. So, yeah, something there anyway. Beautiful. Hey, Glenn, thank you very much for your time. And uh, later on, we'll be speaking to Paul Painter, the general manager of Yummy Fruits, as uh, we look at the damage to the fruit bowl of New Zealand. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. This is the day of our life we call the 20th of February. It's quite a celebrity birthday day. 
television host, comedian, uh, Trevor Noah. He's 39 years old today. Cindy Crawford is 57. And Charles Barclay, basketballer, who became one of the best television hosts uh, of sport in the world. He is 60 years old today. But it's the birthday of a young woman who, um, I think around about this time last week, we were talking about her. No, we weren't. We would have been. uh, Her show was being planned to be suspended in a giant stage in the middle of a football stadium. Robin Rihanna Fenty is her name. Uh, She was born in Barbados in uh, St. Michel. She is the ninth overall artist in all time in total album sales. She sold 250 million records. She's the second largest selling female artist of all time behind Madonna. And if you have a look down from one, you know, right down to whatever, she basically sits between Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin. Um, so she is, uh, yeah, has sold a whole lot there. 14 number one songs. Uh, she actually w- was at school but became an army cadet when she was 11 and sold T-shirts on the street with her dad. So she turned music into uh, business ventures. Uh, her makeup brand Fenty, after her last name, has made her incredibly wealthy. So that little girl who once sold T-shirts on the street with her father on Bar- Barbados was recently valued at $1.4 billion US dollars. Billion. Yeah, she's done all right for herself. You go, Rihanna. Uh, Big day for inventions, too. On this day in 1872, two patents were issued from the patent office. The first one, Luther Childs Crowell. He uh, patented the first machine to make the square bottom paper bags you get at the grocery store. And Silas Noble and Paul uh, James Cooley uh, received a patent for the first toothpick manufacturing machine. And in sports news on this day in 1954, Yvette Williams set a world record jumping 6.29 metres, but in those days it was 20 feet 7.5 inches, at an athletics meet in Gisborne. That was 18 months after winning the long jump at the 1952 Helsinki Olympics. And that's this day we call the 20th of February. It's business, it's business time That's what you're trying to say, you're trying to say let's get down to business, it's business time It's business, it's business time It is business time and that's why it's Mr Business, it's Giles Beckford who's with us Give us the business, Giles. What, what's going on? More energy in Nathan. Actually, just uh, thinking back to your conversation uh, on fruit and veggies, I was mm. in the supermarket last night. Photographs all over the fruit and veggie section of flooded areas and a little uh, statement underneath saying, please be uh, considerate and understanding the floods and the cyclone have done big damage to uh, food crops in key areas. Um, if it's not here... Don't get ugly about it. And mm. I thought that was a wee bit of a, of a preemptive strike, but um, at the same time, you know, quite understandable and you know, good good advice. You know, I mean. Well, also good... don't don't get mad and yell at supermarket workers anyway. Oh yeah, you know what yeah, I mean. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I mean, there is that. I, I, I get very disappointed. I mean, I heard the other uh, over the weekend, you know, road workers being shouted at because people were being delayed or not being allowed to go through uh, various uh, streets and the like. And I'm just thinking. We seem to, and, and I, it happens at times of crisis, but people just seem to lose that sense of tolerance after a while, don't they? Mm. Especially yeah. if they're not directly affected. But anyway, I digress. Yes. Uh, what we're looking at, of course, is it's a big week, first of all, on the company earnings uh, season. Uh, we're going to have about 25 companies report. These are companies listed on the stock exchange, listing their half-year or full-year results. So far, last week, 
the trend seems to be that if companies fall short of expectations or don't have a good outlook, then they get a bit of a spanking on the share market. Their price goes down. So uh, investors, particularly those in the investment companies, the fund managers, taking a pretty dim view of uh, any results that really aren't up to scratch. And I think that there will be quite a few of those uh, this week. We're going to see companies confessing that the outlook looks grimmer, looks tougher, the profits will be lower. Um, I'd be interested to see if um, companies actually decide on uh, actually cutting some of their dividends um, just as you know, some way of keeping a lid on prices. Um, it will crimp shareholder returns, but by the same token, it does a little bit in keeping prices down. Mm. The other big one for the week is the Reserve Bank. That's Wednesday. Now, there's been a bit of a debate over the past uh, week, 10 days, as to whether, in fact, the RBNZ should raise interest rates at all this Wednesday. The expectation uh, when they last uh, met in November was that there would be perhaps 75 basis points, that's three quarters of a percent, that would take the cash rate to 5%. Um, and, and, you know, just once again, it's all about inflation. Um, some of the numbers have come in a bit softer than expected since then. The labour market numbers were a bit on down. Uh, inflation numbers, when they came out, were below what the Reserve Bank was thinking. So people have trimmed that back to 50 basis points this Wednesday, taking the cash rate to 4.75%. That, of course, will flow through to uh, floating mortgages in particular and in due course into fixed rates probably. But Kiwi Bank <clears throat> really raised the issue saying... Should you do it at all at a time like this? That, you know, things are looking a bit softer for the economy. Uh, the cyclone and the floods are really quite a shock. This is the last thing that people really need. Um, I think, you know, it's a principled argument. But in the end, people think the Reserve Bank is not likely to be that generous. They're going to hit people with 50 basis points. They're going to continue to argue that inflation is the number one economic enemy and they have no choice but to keep battling it. In fact, to ease up on the battle, uh, no doubt they will argue, will be to be doing more harm to people in due course because inflation just eats away at so many things, not just uh, the price of the things that you buy, but also your savings and uh, those sorts of things. So uh, we'll wait and see on that one, but I don't think that the Reserve Bank is going to give any ground on that one, and I don't think there's going to be... There might there might be back a little bit of an easing in the tone of their language, but um, let's not expect there'll be any particular generosity uh, from Adrian Orr and the Monetary Policy Committee this Wednesday. So be prepared, and uh, you know, once again, a large number of people will be faced with uh, refixing their mortgages this year. Uh, when I spoke to ASB last week, they're stress-testing people at 8.5%, uh, which tells you how high they think uh, retail interest rates may ultimately go. So that's just an outlook for the week. Um, yeah. And I'm sorry, I can't be much more cheerful than that. That's right. It's the, it's the economy. It's never cheerful. Thank you very much. Uh, Giles Beckford, who's with us there. You can hear more from the business team on the morning report this morning at 10 to 7. Let's go and see what your New Zealand dollar will buy you around the world at the moment. Currently trading at 62.49 US cents, 90.74 Australian cents, 58.36 Euro cents, 51.83 British. British pence, 4.28 yuan and 83.79 Japanese yen.
And now it's time for sport with Felicity Reid. How are you? Good morning, I'm Val. Thank you. It's almost like recently our New Zealand sports teams have almost it's made it feel more like work, hasn't it? Than than you know oh, fun. Definitely. Some people say sports reporter easy job. Not easy always watching when things aren't going so well, is it? <laughs> exactly as well. Where should we? I mean, let's okay. Bat, bats and balls aren't going well for us. Let's talk cricket first, and then we'll we'll talk about something fun, which is indoors with pink singlets and basketball. Yes, so yes. Uh, let's go. There. I mean, Black Cats versus England. Your review of that? Well, it's wrapped up a day early. Um, so that, that was the Black Caps. That was 267 run loss. That's pretty massive loss. This pink ball night, day night test cricket is a little bit of a novelty, something a little bit different. We haven't played a lot of them, and I think that kind of thing showed. Mm. Uh, England bowler Stuart Broad he took four wickets on Saturday night, followed up with Jimmy Anderson four wickets Sunday. So these are two quite experienced guys. But we're listening to Stuart Broad, and he sort of talks about the tactics of a pink ball test, completely different to a normal test match cricket. Yeah. And he sort of says, you know, you sort of plot and plan as to when you want to be bowling. New Zealand won the toss in this test. We mm. our batters probably were given a good opportunity to get some runs on the board. Didn't really turn out that way. Under lights, we just crumbled. Yeah. A friend of mine picked that really well when I bet that England declare about half an hour before the end of play or an hour before because that's the worst time to be facing and sure enough that did, didn't it? And yeah, they just right through our that, that ball apparently is a little bit, it gets a little bit heavier. Some of the England bowlers, Ollie Robinson wasn't a big fan of the pink ball. He sort of says that it feels a little bit different and becomes a little, and more in the batter's favour. But mm. New Zealand certainly didn't show that. No. Um, so moving from there, uh, but mind you, sorry, just quickly, um, it, the crowd's hard to argue with. It's more convenient for the spectator, this. I mean, you could see there was a lot, particularly considering the weather that had gone on. I mean, that's actually quite incredible, the crowd they got in, I think. Yeah, and in a good place for that as well. Mm. Sitting around on the bank, enjoying a night of cricket, that's probably one way to draw in the crowd, and that's, I guess, what they were trying to do with that kind of test match. Okay, White Ferns, please, top order, just get some runs. Oh, exactly. The uh, T20 World Cup game starts this morning, 6 o'clock against Sri Lanka. We need lots of runs. Uh, that in order to get into the semi-finals, they need to really boost their run rate mm. and kind of get, well, obviously get a win, a big win, and then they're waiting on other results as well to determine whether they join Australia through into the semi-finals. I haven't been into the semi-finals since 2018 at a World Cup like this, so... You know, we are going to be relying on that top order, the Susie Bates, the Sophie Devine, the Amelia Kerr, the players that perhaps have put on the runs before but have had maybe a little bit of a shaky start to this tournament, especially in those first two games where, mm. you know, they were heavy losses out for 67 runs in a T20 game. It's not exactly the best. So Sri Lanka, this is a game that they've targeted and they're really going to, um, Maddie Green, one of their batters yesterday was saying that they're going to take an aggressive approach mm. and that's what they're really going to need to do this morning. Yeah. Um, the, the breakers, again, the, the fun of basketball, the highs, the lows, the oh, we're out, oh, we're back in, oh no, it's a foul. Um, we got to that as well. It was nice to have some glory. Hooray for the breakers. Yes, the breakers are through to the NBL finals for the first time in seven years. Last night they wrapped up a three-game series against the Tasmania Jack, Jack Jumpers. That was 92-77. Mm. But they were like trailing early in the game, 13-2 at one point. Oh, that but start back. was awful. It was, oh, <laughs> no, don't do this. Come on, please. Maybe it was that home crowd, the loud spark arena that got in behind them and pushed them really across the line yeah. towards what, I mean... They're facing the Sydney Kings in a best of five, and the so Sydney that's going to be are, tough. The Sydney Kings have looked, I believe the word is overwhelming this year for everybody. 
Um, but what a great journey back from the breakers too, from you know from highs and lows of the last few years for sure. Oh, exactly. Last year they only won five games the whole yeah. season. So I mean, to have turned that around, finished wooden spoon, bottom of the bottom of the league, and really away from home, and not I don't think for many of them really enjoying the basketball that they were playing. Hmm. New coach in Modi Mayor this year, and they've really turned it around and have. I th- like um, Captain Tom Abercrombie, he's been with the team. He's played in each of those four previous title runs and said at the beginning of the season under Modi, they sort of all came on the first day of preseason and clicked. They were all friends, mm. but they still now really challenge each other. And he said this has been blow-ups. They sort of get into each other, but it's that culture of having the right people and I think challenging each other to want to be better. Yeah. He says Modi's a hard coach to play for, but he because he challenges them and has high expectations, I think after that second game of the semi-final series, which they lost in Tasmania, I think they really didn't consider that they'd played to their potential or the way that they would want to show themselves as a club. So last night to come back and have that big win at home and then set it up against the defending champions. But it's going to be a bit of a wait till we see that game. Like the international break uh, takes the playoff, well, the final qualifying series for the Basketball World Cup is this, well, over the next couple of weeks. Yeah. So, so the Tall so Blacks are playing this week and next week, but they take a little bit of a break in this NBL series between the semifinals and the finals, which is a bit of an unusual one as well. All that momentum goes out the window a little bit. It is bit. bizarre. Well, they have to wait till like 3rd of March. Yes. Talk about there. There's some momentum. No, it's not. Taking it away. So anyway, but they're there. Felicity, thank you very much for your time. The uh, Felicity Reid uh, with all that's good in the world of sport. So it is 20 to 6 right now. It's Nathan Rarity here at First Up on RNZ uh, National Cyclone. Gabrielle Talk uh, dominates the uh, programme between now and the end. Uh, Orchardists, of course, counting the costs. Yummy Fruits General Manager Paul Painter will be here with us just to to talk about, uh, I guess, the damage that happened, what was lost that they know of so far, and the road ahead. I just want to talk about replanting an orchard, uh, just the difficulties of that, and then how long you've got to wait for your payday. And also, too, Matthew Tunison, our reporter has been the boots on the grounds near Tolaga Bay and we hear uh, about a, a community uh, where that forestry slash which shows up in every single picture that you see has gone and wreaked havoc there and farmers asking who should foot the bill. <laughs> The professionals of Morning Report have a lot to bring you after six. It's Guyan Espiner who's with me now to talk about it. There's, there's a ton, right? <laughs> yeah, there is. Yeah. And obviously it's on the Cyclone Gabriel uh, clean-up the, mm. uh, and all the ramifications of that. The, the death toll at, at 11 at the moment, uh, that is expected to uh, to rise. Tens mm. of thousands still without power. Uh, one of the stories that, that is emerging too is this element of crime or looting. We're going to see how real that is. We're going to talk to the police commissioner, Andrew. Costa. I'm always a little sceptical about um, these stories. I think we need to get to the bottom of I what the facts are. I saw some tweets with the classic name and then loads of numbers after it and, you know, claiming all the stuff that had happened. There's thought, a lot of rumours and a there's of a lot that, of fear yeah. um, about people who've lost a lot and are wanting to protect their property, so we get that. We're just yeah. going to try and see what the actual facts are from, from the police commissioner there. Yeah. There are uh, extra 120 or so uh, police in, in this region, but what, what are they doing? Are they helping searching for people or uh, how real is this looting issue? 
Lisa. We'll look at that. We're going to speak to Kitty Allen, who's the um, obviously a minister, but an East Coast MP as well. Mm. She, you know, in her, her um, she's very enmeshed in that community. So we're going to speak to to her about people who are still waiting to hear from their whānau. Um, obviously, uh, updating the power situation there too in in Hawkes Bay as people are trying to, to restore power lines, etc. So we'll bring you all that uh, on Morning Report from six. Beautiful. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, look, uh, Cyclone Gabrielle uh, has wiped out fresh produce from our powerhouse growing region there in Hawke's Bay. So fruit and veggies worth millions of dollars are being destroyed and hectares of lush horticulture land is turned to pulp, probably viticulture as well. Uh, Yummy Fruit is one of the many growers affected by the devastation. The company's general manager, Paul Painter, joins me now. Paul, I wish we had happier things uh, to talk about. Um, First off, mate, how are you going? Oh, we're pretty resilient. We're, we're coping okay. It's um, it's a devastating mess. I mean, um, we live on this side, the southern side of the Nararoro River, and it's absolutely normal. The orchards look normal. Life is normal. And you cross that river and it turns into um, a scene that is unimaginable. And none of the photos do it uh, justice because you just keep driving and the, the scale of the destruction is the thing that really... Uh, gets to you. It's just yeah. vast. Paul, I'm, I'm thinking there as well. So the way you've described that there, so it sounds like a lot of the Hastings orchards are, are going to be okay-ish. I mean, if we, if we head a little north there uh, to get there. Can you just explain to people, roughly, when you have a look around, about how many food-producing uh, orchards or viticultures or, or uh, veggie crops have, have you lost down there? Um, it's a good question, and I think we're still coming to terms with that. I, I suspect that it's something like 35%. That would be my guess. Uh, I mean, it's there's a lot of smaller areas, but not so much in places like Pukitapu, which have been very badly affected. Not a huge vegetable growing area. Uh, quite a lot of orchards there, some veggies. But, uh, yeah, on the plains here, it's, it's paddock after paddock. Onions, squash, corn, beans, peas. You name it, it's uh, it's in the wrong in the wrong paddock right now. We've got onions hanging from our trees. Uh, we've got uh, um, nectarine orchards with with apples in the trees. We've got a plum orchard with some dead sheep in the trees. So it's uh, just a surreal scene. Oh, it's it's awful from from what I saw there as well. So d- explain this to us as well. If if you're one of these poor uh, growers that's lost this and, and gone through, let's just say an orchard of of apple trees, would those is the thing the only thing you can do now? Pull all those out and start again, or are they? Do you think there are some that are revivable? And the second part of my question is, how long does it take to start an orchard from scratch before it's producing properly for you? Good questions. Um, I think generally all of the crop that's touched the water is a write-off, and this is one of the real concerns at the moment. You've got growers, unfortunately, who will be desperate. Um, we've got uh, many staff, almost 500 at the moment, uh, for the harvest, and last week nobody really did anything. Uh, so uh, our income will dry up very quickly. Uh, so uh, that's a real challenge. But anything that's touched that water, I mean, Ravens down fertiliser, Yesterday was still flooded in water, so there'll be a whole lot of um, uh, inputs there from the fertiliser industry floating around. There is sewage in that water, no doubt. There are, there are piles of dead sheep I saw stacked up yesterday in, in the water. So the water's dangerous. 
um, and it's basically spread through all those crops. So they're basically a write-off. They look okay, and I'm worried about people, you know, grabbing a few onions off the fence or yeah. finding a pumpkin or a melon or two and thinking that'll be able, we'll give it a wash, it'll be okay. It probably won't be. There's probably things that have made their way into the produce. So big issue, and growers need to do the right thing, and there'll be an awful lot of testing going on on various crops uh, to see how badly they're contaminated. But it's very hard to do because you don't know what they're contaminated with. So what tests yeah. do you do? So basically the logical thing is all of these crops uh, should be written off. That's the right outcome. But an orchard in general, uh, well, the problem is in a lot of these blocks, you can't re-establish anything because you're dealing with, uh, well, in our worst situation, probably one and a half metres of river silt, uh, mm. but right down to you know, 20 or 30 centimetres. Uh, that really needs removing because it really seals off the soil and is it's anaerobic and really it's difficult to grow anything but very shallow rooted crops in it. So where it's deep, I suspect it'll be leveled off, grass down and it'll become grazing for um, most of the next generation. Uh, so it'd be difficult to access that soil. But in orchard to get back into full production for most crops is sort of five years is a, is a good uh, is a good number to think about, and grapes what, what, as what well. What does that do to the likes of Watties, you know, uh, and and those industries that come off around it that buy this fruit to you know to can it for those that aren't buying it fresh? Well, Watties have got some flexibility a little bit. They they grow quite a lot uh, in Central Hawke's Bay. They grow a fair bit in the Manawa too, so they can actually move uh, further out to some regions and probably grow stuff and truck it. Uh, and there's still some capacity to grow to grow here. Obviously, most of the soil's okay. Uh, so I think they'll be okay. The, the real tragedy is for uh, people who are heavily in the damaged areas that basically have had their capital infrastructure wiped out. You know, they've got um, no ability to produce a crop. And actually, where do they find the, uh, sometimes millions of dollars to redevelop those orchards? They might have spent 20 or 30 years developing. They're gone. Uh, who's going to fund the redevelopment? But if it doesn't occur, it will have a huge impact on our economic engine here in Hawke's Bay. Yeah. Paul, um, thank you very much for, for being here with us, getting up early and, and what is a terrible timing. I, mean, I know that, um, that the smell is overwhelming a lot of people, but it's been heartening to see uh, lots of people pitching in to help. Um, and I, I think a couple of weeks away is where it might get quite hard to people in Hawke's Bay if it feels like the world's moving on, but we're not going to leave you, all right, mate? Um, thank you very much for your time and hopefully we can uh, catch up again soon. That is uh, the General Manager of Yummy Fruit, Paul Painter. Well, a Tolaga Bay Kiwi fruit farmer says both the government and forestry companies need to compensate homeowners, business owners, and the forestry workers themselves in the aftermath of Cyclone Gabrielle. Bridget Parker, who lives in the settlement of Parua, around eight kilometres from Tolaga Bay, says that forestry slash has destroyed people's lives. She says local forestry workers have been told there's no work as the roads to plantations are closed. She told our producer Matthew Tunison that's not good enough. Here's his report. A carpet of silt covers the paddocks off Parua Road to the northwest of Tolaga Bay, and the slash and large logs brought down by the floodwaters are strewn everywhere. Mercifully, the power is back on, but there's still no phone or internet, and the handful of locals I was able to meet yesterday were yet to hear from the official response teams. Diggers have been busy clearing the road, which in places has metre-high walls of mud at either side. 
The mud stretches as far as the eye could see across some of the paddocks and the busted fences are laced with wood that's been washed in from the forestry blocks. The scale is hard to comprehend. Henry Halley and his wife bought their place in 2016. This is already their fourth flood. Oh, just that cyclone bloody Gabriel, he just come up and once the water, the river's just over there, so once the water comes over, it just goes straight through our place and the neighbours. Were you home at the time? No, we got out on this one. We evacuated to the house up by the farm. Oh, yeah. Just, just down the road. Just, and yeah. um, But the last three we stayed here until the bitter end. Um, this time it's not funny. So we got out while we could. Yeah. Uh, we'll do what we did the last three times, right? Just carry on and clean up. So you just finished cleaning up the last one? Just about. We just had a pile of silt to get rid of from the last flood. And then cyclone hail. And then Gabriel come along and dumped, as you can see, mm. more here. And gone through our paddocks. Is, is your house livable? Yes. Oh, We're God. blessed with that. It didn't go through our house. Yeah, yeah. But went right around it. And Yeah, but we're better off than a lot of people. Stupid question, but how are you feeling? You know? um, mentally not well. Yeah. But we're alive. National Party leader Christopher Luxon led a group to visit Padua Road yesterday. But people here say they're going to need more than just words. A bloke with broad shoulders driving a massive digger is a welcome sight. I'm with Radio New Zealand. Oh, OK. You must be the most popular person oh. in, um, <laughs> in the area at the moment. Well, it's pretty bad. It is pretty bad. Sean Iamunga has been going house to house helping people gain access to their properties. Uh, it's a 13-ton wheeled excavator. So this is uh, what, what people really need right now? Yeah, so all we're doing at the moment is just trying to get access into all the houses so people can come and go and get, get, get started with the clean-up. So, yeah, just trying to make access at the moment. What is the situation? You know, I can't quite believe my eyes. Yeah, yeah, no, well, it, it's sort of, uh, you know, these 100-year storms seem to be um, every month now. But, um, yeah, I don't know, it is what it is, you know, like ever since Bowler it's it's been a big big issue and, um, yeah, it's something that just keeps happening. There are lots of forestry workers around here, and because they can't get to the plantations, it means they're out of pocket. Kiwi fruit farmer Bridget Parker has been giving some of them work, ripping out her silt-ridden kiwi fruit vines. She says some of the workers have babies and badly need the money. We've got staff who are working for us right now who have been kicked out of the forests and told by the forestry that they've got no income. So they've come to us this week, the darling things, to help us dig out every single one of our 12,500 gold kiwifruit plants. We're all down on our hands and knees in the silt, digging with debris from the forestry around the plants to try and get the silt out. And these, a lot of the people that came here, the 30 people that turned up to help us on a Saturday and Sunday, have been told there's no work in the forest because the roads are gone, we can't pay you. Go and see MSC or MSD or whoever the hell they are that are going to give you a handout. That's what they've been told, that there's no work. Everyone needs to be paid out for their costs. The losses to income of the people affected, whether it be the council cleaning up the beaches, the whanau's homes who have been flooded, the people who have lost their jobs in the forestry, they all need to be compensated by both the forestry companies and the government together. Bridget's been well supported by her family and the local community, but she's had an absolute gutsful. The job of the people of New Zealand, all whānau of New Zealand, is to be the kaitiaki of the land, of the whenua. That's our job. We are the custodians. We don't really own it. We just get to have a turn of it. 
And the problem is now that we are going to return it to the next generation and the generations following in a very, very poor condition, almost beyond, almost beyond being able to to come right from. It's getting to the point now where I think the New Zealand government has washed us down the river and it's washed the East Coast down the river and it is time for someone, everyone, to stand up and say, this is our whenua, we know how to protect it and the government and the forestry companies need to listen. That's Pārua Kiwi fruit farmer Bridget Parker ending that report from our producer Matthew Tunison, who is, uh, like I said, our boots on the ground there in Tairawhiti. Some feedbacks come in this morning. Uh, Andrew says, uh, Morena, no work for local forestry workers on the East Coast, says that report. I can't believe my ears. The forestry companies could pay those workers to clear the slash. Yeah, I guess I mean someone's got to figure that out. It goes a very, very long way. Uh, someone's here. I, I think you've kind of got the wrong end of the stick here. How dare you minimise the looting post-disaster? It happens after all such events. It's terrifying for the innocent victims. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt it is. Uh, Costa will give his spin and RNZ will accommodate him. Thank you, Mike. No, I think uh, what I was getting at there is that uh, there has been a lot of, and um, that's, that's my home down there and there's been a lot of messages with with people being sent saying oh I, I saw on Reddit or I saw on Twitter or I saw on Facebook groups that there's large roaming packs of people going around and, and that's what I mean by when you have a look at it and you'll see it, it comes from a, a Twitter handle let's say if it's a, a it might be Mike with a whole lot of numbers after it as well and, and those turned out not to be fact but the problem is is that also raises uh, it raises paranoia and uh, it's already a terribly terribly stressed area of the country and uh, there's a, a big tr- adrenaline rush now as everyone is helping each other but in a couple of weeks time it just gets horrible because it feels like the rest has moved, moved on and those of you in Christchurch that lived through that earthquake and know that feeling that is about to come to Hawke's Bay to Tairawhiti to maybe to parts of Coromandel even areas like Muriwai Bethels or what have you that could happen so Mike I wasn't trying to uh, minimise is it looting is whatever the word is I can use on air for it? It's awful. All right. Uh, morning report is next with Guy and Corin uh, from all of us here at First Up. Have yourselves a wonderful day. First Up, we'll be back in your ears. Ah, Paul.